0: Bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, November fifteenth, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Dr. Sarah Josephine Baker. She was born on this day in 1873. Dr. Baker, or Dr. Joe, as she was commonly known, is easily one of my favorite humans that I've learned about thus far. Not only was she a radical public health pioneer and physician, like Dr. Harvey Washington Wiley, whose work saved the lives of over ninety thousand infants, she was also the medical detective who helped track down and arrest typhoid Mary. Like just incredible woman. I can't wait. Let's just dive right in. So Sarah was born in Poughkeepsie, New York to a rich Quaker family led by attorney Daniel Baker and his wife, Jenny Baker, who was one of the first Vassar College graduates. At the age of 16, Sarah's brother and father both died of typhoid, which led Mary to want to pursue a career in medicine, partly because she wanted to help the community, but partly because she felt an impetus to support her mom and her sister. So She gives up a a Vassar scholarship, and she studies science at home before enrolling in the Women's Medical College at the New York Infirmary founded by Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell, the first female physician in the U.S. Sarah excelled in her study. She failed only one class called the Normal Child, which Sarah says started her lifelong fascination with pediatrics. So she graduates in 1898, and she began a year-long internship at the New England Hospital for Women and Children in Boston. And when she finished that up, she worked in private practice for one year. But she got kind of restless, and she wanted to help the community in a larger way. So in 1901, she took and passed the state exam to be a medical investigator. It's an unbelievably cool job title. In 1907, she is made the Assistant Commissioner of Health in New York City, and the following year she is appointed Director of the brand new Bureau of Child Hygiene, and she decides to take on the worst slum in the whole city, Hell's Kitchen. At that point, over 4,500 people were dying there every week, 1,500 of which were babies, and a third of all kids living in Hell's Kitchen didn't make it past their fifth birthday. It was known as the suicide ward among health inspectors, as the thousands of people packed so tightly together with no hygienic practices or finances to afford good medical care ensured that everything from measles to typhoid just abounded. Sarah was stepping into a severely neglected neighborhood and a severely apathetic health department. Health inspectors were expected to visit three schools an hour, and this was obviously impossible, so most of them just called in schools and were like, hey, are the kids all there? They look alive? Okay, cool. Dr. Joe described the department as reeking of negligence and stale tobacco and slacking. The other medical detectives began to chide her, saying that when she was reporting sick kids, it made the department look bad, and it was the practice of other inspectors to drastically downplay the amount of ill babies in the tenements. But Dr. Joe refused to fudge on her numbers, and ultimately the other health inspectors were dismissed and new, more honest ones were brought on. So tapping into her love of pediatrics, Sarah decided to focus on the infant mortality rate. Dysentery was the number one cause of death for babies, but usually uh, parental ignorance and lack of hygiene kind of played into the context as well. So Dr. Jo recruited a bunch of nurses to start the first infant care programs for mothers in Hell's Kitchen. She taught them how to wrap babies in cool, breathable fabric instead of hot wool blankets during the summer months, how to give them a balanced diet, how to properly bathe them, how to give them a safe sleeping area that wouldn't suffocate them. Like all this stuff is obviously common sense today, but back then it just wasn't. There was no parenting books or blogs, obviously, and things like maternal mental health and postpartum depression, a comprehensive understanding of germs and disease is. There was you know, no refrigeration, like all this stuff made life way more dangerous for babies in the slum. Plus the vast majority of people in the slums were immigrants who had no idea how to survive in the world's largest city, having mostly come from small towns or villages. And they were kind of written off as hopeless by health inspectors, sometimes simply because the inspector couldn't understand their language. So she set up a station where mothers could get safe milk. If you listened to our jumbo October 18th episode on Dr. Harvey Washington Wiley, you'll remember how the average bottle of milk in the late 1800s was mostly water with some milk, plaster of Paris or chalk for whiteness, and a float of pureed calves' brains in lieu of cream. Like, no wonder a third of babies were dying. Dr. Joe set up these stations so she could ensure that the milk that the women were getting for their babies was unadulterated, and she also created a safe formula so women could go back to work to support the families. She encouraged women to breastfeed, though, if possible, as their milk was obviously safer than anything that was commercially available. STI's were rampant in Hell's Kitchen, and transmission from mom to baby wasn't totally understood. Gonorrhea in particular was an issue because it causes blindness in newborns. There was this practice before Dr. Joe stepped in of giving babies silver nitrate drops to stave off blindness, but the dropper was usually either not sterilized or the dosage was way too high and it ended up actually making baby's eyes even worse. So she invented single dose containers of silver nitrate so that there was no reusing the droppers and the amount in each each could be perfectly measured ahead of time. And in the first year she began these measures, the amount of babies becoming blind as a result of maternal gonorrhea or improper silver nitrate application dropped from 300 to three. And the overall number of infant deaths dropped from 1,500 to 200. By 1911, the infant mortality rate for the whole city was down 40%. However, babies were still very much at risk due to unsafe labor practices. Hospitals were for rich people, and children of the slums were usually delivered by midwives, usually unskilled, as they were not allowed formal medical training, or they were delivered by whatever female relative was around. Thanks to Dr. Joe, a midwife training program was founded by New York City to give its tenement babies a fighting chance. Another finding that she discovered was the immense need that babies had for emotional support and physical affection from a parental figure. Gotta remember back then, most doctors told mothers that if they cuddled or held their babies, they would be psychologically damaged, which as we know today, the opposite is true. So Sarah discovered this when the department opened up an orphanage for abandoned babies, and despite receiving great medical care and safe milk, half the babies died. Once Dr. Joe got involved and instituted her hygienic practices and told staff to hold and interact with the babies regularly, the death rate was cut in half. She was the first doctor to scientifically prove that babies need love. Not forgetting the older children, Dr. Joe installed a doctor and a nurse at every school in New York City to do routine wellness checks. This simple step virtually eradicated the two biggest medical issues in schools at that time, lice and trachoma, which is an eye infection caused by chlamydia, which if left untreated leads to blindness. But wait, there's more. On top of all of this, Dr. Joe was also the person to arrest typhoid Mary. Okay, Quick sidebar on typhoid Mary for any of us that need a little refresher. So Mary Mallon was an Irish immigrant who had been born infected with typhoid as her mother had it when she was pregnant. But Mary was patient zero or an index case, as it's also called. She was asymptomatic, but highly contagious. She comes to the States when she's 15 and she begins to work as a cook for rich families. Her signature dish was vanilla ice cream with sliced peaches, and it was so good that all the society families who used her would brag about her to their friends, and she began to get a lot of work. In 1900, she took a job for a rich family, and within two weeks of starting, the family began to come down with typhoid. The next year, she began working for a family in Manhattan, and the members contracted typhoid, and their laundress died of it. Mary then took another job with a lawyer, but left after seven out of the eight people in the family came down with typhoid. Like at this point, I don't know if she's connecting the dots or not, or if she just like, didn't give a crap that she was getting everyone sick. I don't know. But in 1904, she was hired by a rich lawyer. And within a week, four of his seven servants come down with typhoid. None of the family did though, because the servants lived in a separate house. The laundress also became ill, and the health inspector that came out, Dr. Wilson, said the laundress was the diseased culprit. As soon as people got sick, Mary bailed, and she went to go work in Tuxedo Park, and within two weeks, their laundress was taken ill and hospitalized. In 1906, she took a position in Oyster Bay with a wealthy family, and within a week, six out of the 11 people in the family had typhoid. Health inspectors tested all the water sources but found nothing. In 1906, she began working for a wealthy family called the Bowens on Park Avenue, and soon the maid got sick and the only daughter in the family died of typhoid. The last family she worked for hired an investigator named George Soper, and after hearing about this most recent case, he realized that Mary was the common denominator. Probably could have avoided all of this if she washed her hands after she went to the bathroom, but she was not aware of the new field of germ theory, as a lot of people were not, so going from taking a crap to making someone's breakfast without cleaning your hands was not at all uncommon. So George had a hard time finding her because she would leave as soon as people got sick and she never left a forwarding address, but he was able to track her down at the Bowen home. He found her in the kitchen and explained to her that he needed her to come with him to be tested for typhoid. So she freaked out and she threatened to stab him with a carving fork. She refused to give any samples. So Soper goes back and traces her five-year employment history, and he realizes that seven of the eight families she worked with came down with typhoid. So Soper tells the New York City Health Department that Mary is a public health threat and she needs to be arrested. Five policemen and Dr. Sarah Josephine Baker show up to forcibly drag her into an ambulance. Dr. Joe even had to sit on her the entire ride to the hospital to prevent her from jumping out. So at the hospital, she refuses to go to the bathroom for four days, and they have to forcibly take samples from her, which showed that there were huge amounts of typhoid in her stool coming from her gallbladder. So they ship Mary off to North Brother Island, where all contagious people were sent, and she lives there for three years with her dog in a sanitarium with doctors forcibly taking samples from her every day. Finally, the policy to isolate all contagious people is overturned, and she's released in 1910. And she starts cooking again, using fake last names, and just like last time, every family came down with typhoid. So Soper starts to hunt her down again, but she switches tactics, and she begins to work in hotel kitchens and restaurants, sickening everyone she came in contact with. Terrifyingly, her final cooking job was at a hospital for pregnant women. She infected 25 people, two of whom died. So Soper tracks her down to a friend's house and police remove her back to North Brother Island, where she would stay for the next 23 years before dying of pneumonia at age 69. End of Mary Mallon's sidebar. That was a wild one. Back to Dr. Joe. So Dr. Joe becomes a hero in New York City, and the New York University Medical School reaches out and asks her to lecture on children's health and hygiene. And she says that she will if they will allow her to enroll. And they were like, uh, no, stay away from us with your lady parts. But they were finally unable to find a male lecturer with her experience. And they acquiesced, and she became the first woman to receive a doctorate in public health. Her progress was being noticed by other states, too, and over the next few years, 35 other states created infant and child health programs like hers. But of course, some men started complaining, surprise, and in this case, male doctors, and a bunch of them signed a petition asking for her programs to be shut down because, get this because less sick babies and kids means less work for doctors. In their own words, quote, it was ruining medical practice by its results in keeping babies well. I can't, like, I'm sorry, if that's your attitude, then you need to go into like retail where you can't hurt anybody. During World War I, Dr. Joe was interviewed by the New York Times, and that brought her a lot of attention because in this interview, she says, it was six times safer to be a soldier in the trenches of France than it was to be a baby born in the U.S. And that lone comment brought her to a place of public influence where she could insist upon the institution of a free lunch program at all schools. The offers began pouring in at this interview from an offer to be an assistant surgeon general to health director of London public schools to a position in France working with refugees. Everyone wanted Dr. Joe. But she stayed where she was at until she retired in 1923. And at that point, New York City had gone from being the city with one of the highest infant mortality rates to the lowest of all major cities in the country. And even though she retired from her health inspection job, she didn't stop working for public health. She became the first female to be a representative to the League of Nations. She was involved with 25 different medical societies. She was the president of the American Medical Women's Association. She wrote four medical books her own autobiography and 250 medical articles. Dr. Joe spent most of her life with her partner Ida Alexa Ross Wiley, a screenwriter and novelist and self-described woman-oriented woman. There is scant info on Dr. Joe's life; she burned most of her personal papers. Dr. Joe died on February 22, 1945 from cancer. My sources today were Wikipedia, BBC, the New York Academy of Medicine, and the U.S. National Library of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Dr. Sarah Josephine Baker. Please join me November 18th when we celebrate the birth and life of the amazing forensics pioneer, Dr. Francis Gertrude McGill. See you then.